0: Yeah. She's so good. Okay, good evening, everyone. And welcome.
1: Just a reminder
0: for everyone, so this Sunday we're not going to be meeting for COW because of the marathon and it's really hard to kind of figure out a way to get here. I will send you a route over email reminding you again not to come on Sunday for COW. You should be coming for mass. Um, but I always like to go to the o'clock of my house or, you know, something that doesn't kind of have to figure out the route. So, but I'll, sh- I'll shoot you a copy of the route that you can look at and so you can find your ways. Um, again, just a reminder, this weekend if you'd like to bring some diapers for our pro-life week or onesies or wipes for babies, we have a Gabriel project in which we collect um, supplies for moms in crisis pregnancy. So we'll have a big crib in the North and you can just throw your stuff in the crib. And um, that would be awesome. We'll do that for two weekends in a row. And you can bring it next Wednesday here if you want to do that as well. You can also drop home from the office. Um, And then on the 29th is the the Wednesday we're gonna have the movie here. So we'll start at 6.30, just as a reminder. Okay, everybody doing good? Lousy weather and lousy traffic, so I'm sorry about that. So let's pray for patience. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we just praise you and thank you for all of the good things that you bring to us on a daily basis. Our lives, our health, our family, our friends, our work, all of those things, Lord, that sometimes we just take for granted, and so we thank you. We also thank you for this opportunity to understand more deeply the mysteries that are contained in the sacraments of your church. And so today, Lord, help us to be open to receive all that you intend and utilize John as an instrument of your grace. And help us to understand more fully the sacraments of the service of communion. And I ask this as I ask all things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, John Barry is going to be speaking to us tonight. John is a long-term uh, long-time parishioner here at St. Michael. I know he looks really young. <laughs> looks really young. He just had his fifth baby, sweet little baby, uh, little baby big big boys. Now you've got two boys and three girls.
2: Right? So that first boy is so happy. He's got a brother. He actually jumped up and down when he told him That was a
0: boy. <laughs> 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 another sister. <laughs> oh my gosh. John is, um, is new in the deaconate program, so he is studying to become a deacon for our church, which we're really excited about and um, his lovely wife, Nancy, and uh, beautiful kids. You'll see them on the altar serving. Um, They're always at the 7.30 a.m. mass, and uh, John helps me um, to teach baptism, also uh, for our parents, preparation for our parents. So we're happy to have him, and uh, please help me welcome John Perry.
2: Thank you all very much for having me. Um, First of all, I'm so excited for y'all. This is really wonderful. Uh, not only for just you know, welcome you into the church, but for what you mean for other Catholics too. So uh, the light that you bring and the zeal that you bring for the faith is infectious. And so it's really wonderful and congratulations and I'll be praying for y'all. Um, so what we're going to do today is talk about marriage and holy orders. Have y'all ever heard sacraments of the service of communion? Have you heard that phrase before? That's like 99% of people have never heard that. We break up our sacraments into categories just so they're easier to understand and understand why they are what they are. And we most people can tell you the sacraments of initiation, which y'all are very familiar with right now. And then there's the sacraments of healing. But then there's these sacraments, and they don't quite fit in. And so we'll talk about that and what they are and actually how pivotal these are to all of salvation history and God's plan for our own salvation itself. This is, in fact, everything is rooted in these two. Uh, unfortunately, neither of these fit into our society today. And what you'll see is the church fighting desperately to hold on to them because they are so pivotal. And so we'll talk about that, why they don't fit in and what the role, what our role is as Catholics, to defend these uh, and to make sure everyone understands what we mean by a true marriage and by holy orders and what what all that entails. We're gonna go through a sacrament overview. You can't hear it enough. A lot of times, especially as a lifelong Catholic, we tend to take the sacraments for granted. We got them when we were young, Hopefully, we've been going to mass every single weekend, and we've at least been receiving the Eucharist. We try hard to go to reconciliation the once a year that the church says you should at least. But we don't, we don't, we don't take, we don't uh, fully understand what Christ is doing for us and the real gift He's giving us with it. If we did, we would live in these sacraments, which we really should. And so we're going to take the time to go through another overview of them and kind of explain them. I'll try and explain them hopefully a little bit differently than you've seen them before to so maybe shed a little bit more light on that. Then we have to actually, before we get into holy orders and matrimony, we have to actually answer the question, what is love? And you, baby don't hurt me, baby don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. <laughs> so, we will take some time to really understand what is Christian love. St. Paul actually coined a completely new word when he wrote his letters to describe what love was. And so we have to understand that, because this is what we get wrong in our society today. And when you misunderstand what love is, it distorts what marriage is, and it's what causes the breakdown of that marriage. It also distorts holy orders, and it causes the breakdown of that. If, God forbid, if you got to be Satan for one day, you would attack these two institutions, because if you can break down these institutions, you can take a whole lot of souls with you. And so that's why we have to understand truly what love is to be able to understand what God is trying to do with marriage and holy orders so that then we can viciously defend them and really grasp onto them tight. And by doing that, show the entire world what love is and what we mean by true marriage, what we mean by marriage to Christ, what we mean by the church itself. Um, Then we need to spend some time on the actual sacrament of matrimony itself. Then on the role of the family. This obviously flows naturally from matrimony. And the family is the center of the church. We actually have a word for the family itself in the church. And we'll talk about that. But it is the central focus of the church. Um, Is everybody familiar with Scott Hahn? Okay. Everybody should be. Uh, H-A-H-N. He's the head of theology at Franciscan University. He's a convert to Catholicism. But he writes beautiful books on the sacraments, on theology. They're not real deep, but they're they're easily understandable. But he does touch on the, the deep theology of it. And in one of his books, The First Society, where he's talking about family, he makes the claim that if you could fix the family, you would fix society in one generation. And it's actually true we'll talk about that, why why it's that powerful. Um, And then we'll get into the Sacrament of Holy Orders and explain what that is. Uh, We'll get into the particulars of it and the uh, overall meaning of it, okay? Any questions before we get going? Okay, when I talk, I tend to get real, real excited about what I'm talking about. And I speed up and I get louder. And if you have a question, just shout at me, shut up, I gotta ask you something, okay? (laughs) I have no problem with that. I want you to have something to shout it out. Raise your hand. Do whatever. Throw something at me if you want to. Ask your question. Most of the time, you've heard this over and over from every single teacher you've ever had. If you have a question someone else does too, they're afraid to ask it. But also, that's how discussion can start, and that's where the real important stuff will come out. So really, don't be afraid to ask a question. If I say something, don't be afraid to say, whoa, whoa wait a minute. I've never heard that before. Or, no, that can't be explained that." Okay. I'll do my best. If I can't do it, I'll turn to Mary and she can back me up and help me on So we will get you this answer. I don't expect you to leave here ready to get your master's in theology on the sacraments of matrimony and holy orders, but hopefully what it does is just yeah. continues to spark the understanding that this faith is so deep that none of us truly understand all of it. And what will make our church stronger than ever is if every single Catholic continues to learn their faith. You can never learn it all. Keep trying to tear it apart, because the more you tear it apart, especially with matrimony, hopefully I'll show you that tonight, the more you dig into the Gospel, dig into the Old Testament, try and tear it apart, you find this woven fabric goes all the way through the thing that just brings it all together. And it is so intricate. This book was written, the the Bible is just a collection of books written over 2,000 years. But somehow, with these different people telling it, people that had never seen some of the other stories, some had heard some of the stories, you have this collection of books that all tells the exact same story, all hits on the exact same things, and all has these little threads underlying all of them that brings it all together. And it's just incredible when you start breaking it open and seeing that. And that's when you see all these mysteries that we start talking about the sacraments and what the church truly is. So... Always continue to keep studying. Scott Hahn is a great one to go look at. Uh, There's some others. Bishop Barris. So, um, yeah, just always keep learning. Okay. So, what are the sacraments? This is the definition from the catechism. But can anybody just give me a simple definition of the sacraments? Anybody? Anybody have any ideas? What's that? There are a few sacraments. Right. Yeah, there are multiple sacraments. But what is a sacrament, just in general? <clears throat> go ahead. Go for it. It's a way of becoming closer to God. Okay, that's absolutely true. It is a way of becoming closer to God. Go ahead. Go back to the Baltimore Catechism. <laughs> yeah. Outward sign instituted by Christ yeah. to give grace. Very good. Outward sign instituted by God to give grace by Christ to give grace. Another way of saying that, I've heard, is a visible sign of an invisible reality. Right? There is something very real going on there. But what we see happening is really only a symbol of the true thing actually happening. So the way the catechism, which is actually written by Benedict, the sacraments of application are efficacious signs of grace. All that means is they actually do something. They're not just a symbol. If they're a symbol are useless. we can get a symbol anywhere. They're efficacious signs. They physically do something. So what does that mean? When you get baptized and the priest pours the water over your head, well, what does that symbolize? Water a cleansing. Well, what's actually happening there? Your soul has actually been cleansed. Right? Which is why baptism, you can't baptize an unborn baby yet. You physically have to get the water on them because that sign itself, Confers that actual the grace of Christ to cleanse that soul. Okay? So, the sign is important. God created us. He knows us. We're animals. What do we need? When someone teaches you something, we put up PowerPoint. We put up images of things. We bring in models to try and show you this is what it's going to be like. We need this, this tactile reality for us to really get a grasp of what's happening. And God knows that. So he's given us physical signs. He goes, okay, I'm going to give you grace, but you won't understand that. But if I give it to you this way, now you can start grasping the reality of it. So that's what the sacraments are. And they're instituted by Christ. We can go through the Bible and through the Gospels and see every one of the seven sacraments laid out by Christ. It's not glaring at us. He didn't say, okay, here we go, priesthood. And here we go, we're now as that was That was an easy one. But it's every single one of them is in there. And so we can point to each of those. And we'll do that with marriage and holy orders. The holy orders especially. Um, and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. So this is where Christ gives himself to us. I think it's important. Well, I'll go ahead in a second. Um, and then we'll, I'm going to stop and talk about that. Why does Christ have to give us this grace? What are, Where are we right now? What are we doing? What is the meaning of the church itself that helps us better understand the sacraments? But first of all, like you said, there's several of them. There are seven sacraments. We break them up into three groups, like I said. Sacraments of initiation are baptism, Eucharist, and confirmation. Baptism opens up your world to the sacraments. It physically gives you your spiritual life. The sacraments really become become your spiritual life then. When a child, my new baby, the baby, first thing, he's got to be given life when he's born. And then, what does he need? He needs food. So in our spiritual life, we need to be fed. So Christ gives us the Eucharist. Confirmation is the fulfillment of that baptism. It's the fulfillment of giving us that spiritual life and strengthening strengthening it in us. Strengthening it in us. But then throughout our life, we get sick. And so what does he give us? A way to be healed through reconciliation. And ultimately, our life will end. So he gives us the anointing of the sick to seal our soul, to forgive our final sins, and hopefully bring us straight into his eternal life. That's our life right there. But then we've got these two outcasts, sacraments of service and services of communion. Can anybody tell me what's different about those two sacraments?
1: Who did their
2: Okay, that's a good point. If you you can only do one or the other. And we, we'll talk about that, by the way, what, the reason of celibacy and all that. But uh, You're right, you can only do one or the other. You don't have to choose the other sacraments. You get those. It's a lifelong commitment. It's a lifelong commitment, that's true. you giving oneself to someone else or something else. Okay, you're getting very close. You're giving yourself to someone else. You're extremely close on that. With these sacraments... Christ gives you grace for your own salvation. With these sacraments, Christ gives you grace for the salvation of somebody else. So when you are married, you are receiving the grace of Christ to bring your partner to salvation. They're receiving grace to bring you to salvation. I actually heard, it may have been from Scott Hahn actually, he said that when you're married, your spouse becomes the sharpest chisel in the divine artist's hands. Okay? And he will use that to sculpt you into the person that he intended you to be. Okay? So these are the sacraments. So why do we need these? I mentioned the spiritual life. It's, it's always important to go back to the story of salvation. Why are we here in the first place? Anybody remember? Adam and Eve? heard of them. So they are, they are what God intended us to be. When he created us, he created us in his image, he created us man and woman, and we walked hand in hand with God in perfect communion. They walked gently with him, they communicated back and forth, they had no fear whatsoever. St. Augustine actually even said that had they're not going to fall, we would have been able to walk back and forth through heaven just like going through a door, seamlessly. But then sin happened. And what was sin? What was the sin? Anybody know? They From what? The tree. The tree. The tree,
1: of tree of knowledge of good
2: and evil. But you just said something, though. People forget this. There was a second tree in the garden. And she just said it. Most, I've asked this to a lot of classes. You're the first person that said that tree. When I say there was a second tree in the garden, most people look at me like you're crazy. We've never heard of that. It's the tree of life. And that same tree shows up again in Revelation. When John looks up at heaven and sees the new Jerusalem, he sees the tree of life standing by the altar. That's the same tree that shows up in the Gospels when Christ dies on the cross. And so what that means is that when God God created us, he He knows everything. He knows what's going to happen. He gives us free will, but He knows what's happening. And He knew we were going to fall and even then, he already had his plan of salvation for all that's standing by, ready to go. He already intended to bring us back to it. So now, flash forward to the, Bible, to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is very misunderstood. We look at it as, you know, that's when God's angry. Um, it's just these people from thousands of years ago that don't really have anything to do with what we're doing. They had all these funny laws. The Old Testament is the most beautiful love story ever written. It's the story of God's love in search of his fallen people. His people, were they, they've fallen away from him, and now he shows himself to them, and little by little, he starts trying to tell them, this is who I am. Now, why didn't he just come out and say, hey, I'm here, I'm God. We could not, we could not comprehend that. He knows that. So little by little, he revealed himself to us over thousands of years, and he continually kept trying to shape us into his people. So then you get Exodus. They're, they're in slavery in Egypt. And through Moses, he leads his people through the Red Sea out into the desert. They're now free. But they're roaming around in the desert. And what does he do there for 40 years? They're not just roaming. That's when he's forming them. He's getting their old ways out of them. He's trying to chisel away all their pagan beliefs, all the things they got from Egypt. And he's turning them into God's chosen people. Well now, Christ has liberated us through that tree of life. And now we're lost in that desert. He's trying to form us once again into the people that he needs us to be. He wants us to be desperately, Just like the, the Hebrews were given manna in the desert, we're given food as well. And he gives us these sacraments while we're lost in the desert to constantly give us that grace we need to find Him and to be the people we need to find salvation with Him. But His plan was always for us to live in perfect communion with Him forever. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's why sacraments are so important and we can never take them for granted. But in order to understand, especially the sacraments of service of communion, we have to take a look at what God meant by true love. When we say We say God is love from the time our kids are in kindergarten. And we sing cute songs about God is love, but we have no idea what that really means. So in our society, well, first of all, there are three real types of love. There's a few more, but there's three main types of love. Eros, philia, and agape. Um, Our society gets stuck at Eros. Go look at every movie ever made, and it's all about this romantic love. Go look at every Hallmark card. It's all stuck at Eros, okay? And unfortunately, marriage gets stuck at Eros also. Eros is just that act of the body. It's, uh, it can tend towards the muscle side, but it's just that yearning for someone else. And that's fine. That, that can be very healthy. But that's not Christian love. That's just a natural yearning there. Then you have Philia, which you heard Philadelphia. Brotherly love. This is more that the act of the heart is that deep affection for someone. But then, St. Paul, in his letters, coined a whole new word called agape. And by this he meant the sacrificial love of Christ. And this was a whole new kind of love. Um, I don't think we understand how radical, radically things changed with Christ. You know, we, we kind of think of today's terms of how everything must have been back then. The pagan world was, I mean, the idea, you don't want, well, not going to get it. Okay, so you're not happy with your child, throw them in the river. Honestly, it was that bad. Your child, you have someone that's sick and poor, throw them in the, in the river, let them die. No big deal. It wasn't until Christ that all of a sudden these people started caring for the poor and caring for the children. This was a radical change. And that's what Paul said. That's why they'll know us by our love. It wasn't just that they'll know us because we're happy and we sing songs. No, it's this radical care for other people despite ourselves, instead of ourselves. That is the sacrificial love. Um, Love is not a feeling. This is the part we all get wrong. You love your spouse. There is a feeling that goes with that, but it fades. It just does. That puppy love, it will go away. It'll change. Love is a decision every minute. It's an act of the will. St. Thomas Aquinas actually said it's willing the good of the other as the other for no other reason. It's not saying, look, I want what's good for you because then you're going to do business with me. Or I want what's good with you because then you're going to do something nice for me in return. Love is I want what's best for you just because of who you are. And we have to put that in our terms. What's best for you is not temporal goods or a brand new shiny car. The true good for you is God. So, true love is willing you to God, wanting everything you do to be ordered towards God so that you get to spend eternity with Him. That is true love. It means foregoing everything I want and turning my will over to yours. Does that ring any bells when you start hearing that? Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ did not want to die on the cross. He was sweating blood. He was so scared of it. But he turned to the Father and he said, but not my will, but your will be done. That was what Hans Urs von Balthasar, who was one of the greatest uh, theologians of the 20th century, he shaped. He actually helped shape Benedict, and he helped shape uh, John Paul II. He said, that's perfect love. When you can completely submit your will for the will of another and want only what's good for them the way Christ did for God, that is the perfect love. So we have to keep this in mind when we talk about marriage. When I say I love my spouse, yeah, there's a feeling there. But what I mean is, I want nothing but God for her at all times. And I want nothing but to see her saved for eternity. And everything I do will be geared towards that. And she's looking at me the same way. Everything she does will be geared towards my salvation. That's what we mean by true love. So I've always heard that, you know, love's a sacrifice. And I gotta be, I gotta be honest, I have a happy marriage. I my we met when actually our mothers went to high school together back in the 50s. And then We went to grade school together. We started dating when she was 14 years old and I was 15 years old. And we were married the minute we got out of college. And we've now been married 20 years. I'm perfectly happy. But to be honest, I never understood that when people said love is a sacrifice. Like it doesn't feel like it. Pretty happy here. Till I finally understood what this meant. Oh yeah, it is. It means it doesn't matter what I want. It matters what's good for her. And she's been thinking the same thing. As Christians, we do that for everybody too, actually. That we want good for you just because you are the son and daughter of God. That's the sacrificial love that Christ calls us to. Are there any questions on that? Okay. So now, with that backdrop, we can look at these two sacraments. And now, I put up there the loss of sacramentality. We've lost their meaning now. In our society, we've trivialized it. Marriage is now when two people find each other, they really love each other, and they want to grow old together. And holy orders is when, well, marriage doesn't feel quite right for me, and so I'll go do that. And really, anybody can be a priest. It really just means running a church and saying a couple other words every Sunday. That's all you really work. That's not what these are. That's what we've lost because of our lack of understanding of what true love is. If these are sacraments, we have to understand how Christ becomes present in them. Remember, go back to our definition. It's how Christ brings himself to us while we're lost in this desert. So for us to understand these, we have to find where is Christ in these. So let me ask you that. Why should two people get married? Any answer. Well, this is the easy one. To save my mother, bring them to Okay, I shouldn't have told you all that before. <laughs> <laughs> okay, she's right. Um, normally, I'll ask this up front, and these are the answers I get every single time. They love each other, of course. And why else? They want to spend their lives together. I mean, and if you go on The Bachelor, you can do it in like 13 weeks. <laughs> that easy. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and then, yeah. So, and that's it, but that's not it. Now, like you said. It's because you both have heard a calling. If your child ever asks you, how do you know you're ready to get married? First question is have you prayed? Have you asked God? Because both of you should be hearing the call of God. Because he wants you two to work together to do his will. Um, Fulton Sheen Y'all know who Fulton Sheen is? Full, uh, okay, first of all, y'all know who Robert Barron is, Bishop Robert Barron. Okay, if you know Mary, you know Robert Barron. I hope she played everything for you. If you have any questions, go out and Google Robert Barron on that. He is brilliant, and he is a godsend for our church. Fulton Sheen was Robert Barron first, I think back in the 50s, maybe, and uh, he's right on the edge of being becoming a saint, too, right now. But Fulton Sheen wrote a book Called, I think it's three persons in a marriage. Okay. Three, to get married. three to get married. There you go. And actually, Bishop Barron talks about this too. It goes all the way back to Aristotle where two people will love each other because there's a transcendental third. I mean, it could be as trivial as, you know, you and I are closer together because we all, we love baseball. And, you know, but those things change. What we mean by Christians is We both love God so much, and that never changes, and that's why it's forever, because as long as we maintain that love for God, we maintain our love for each other to cling each other to Him. So when someone asks you, how do you know you're ready to get married, have you listened to God calling you to work together for His will? That's what a true marriage is or matrimony is also very interesting. It's not like the Eucharist where the priest gives you the sacrament itself. You don't actually receive anything. The priest actually doesn't do anything. The priest is a witness to this whole thing. The deacon can do it too. The deacon and the priest stand in for the church just as a representative to see that you have done this. You actually become the sacrament for each other. You two have together become the sacrament. So again, go back to our definition. Sacrament is Christ, through some sign, an efficacious sign, bringing himself to the world. Well, if you two become the sacrament, what does that mean? It means that you two together are the manifestation of Christ's love for the church itself. And through you two, through the love of you two, Christ himself is brought to the world. This is why there's always that something special. When you see a married couple, young or old, that you know is a strong, true married couple, there's just something about being around them. And that's because Christ is with them. Everything they do is mimicking Christ. He uses them to bring himself to the world. It's a manifestation of Christ's love for the church itself. And so what what does that mean? Christ gave himself for the church. They give themselves for each other now to show everyone the same thing. So that is why the Catholic Church fights (coughs) to the nail to hold on to what we mean by a marriage. No, we do not mean that it's just any two people that care about each other. Christ himself said it is a man and a woman who come together to be Christ now for the world, the same way he does. Um, It is so important that all of salvation history is wrapped around marriage. The Bible itself starts and ends with a marriage. Open up Genesis and what do you have? Adam and Eve with God. Go to Revelation and what do you have? Christ marrying the church at the Lamb's Supper. The lamb Supper in the in revelation is the wedding feast of the Lamb. It is when the church has finally become Christ's pe- perfect people and we join him in the New Jerusalem and he stands before the altar of God with us as he's our bridegroom, we're his bride. and we now live together as one. That's where we're all headed hopefully. That's why it's so important. So now look at the Gospels. Where was Christ? Big letters. Or, oops. It's in big letters up there. Where was Christ's first miracle? Wedding at Cana. That's not an accident. It Actually, if you go look at the wedding at Cana, it was on the third day of the wedding. That's not an accident either. And then, let's go back to Adam and Eve. When Adam sinned, Luke, it wasn't an apple, by the way. If anybody tells you it was an apple, the Bible never says the word adam. It was just a fruit. Who gave him the fruit? Eve did. So Eve was the one that was the first disobedient one to God. Now Adam sinned too because it was Adam's job to keep her away from sin. They were supposed to work together. And he abandoned her and let her be tempted by the, by the serpent. But then she turns and gives him the forbidden fruit and he eats it. Well, then at the wedding in Cana, we have the exact opposite thing happening. Mary, standing in as the new Eve, looks at Christ and sends him on his mission and says, yes, be obedient to God. She knew what was coming. She knew where this was headed. She had already been told that he is going to pierce your heart like a sword. She knew this was going to end in death. And she still looked at him and said, yes, because it's God's will, go do it. Then she turned to all of us and said, do what he says. And that was the last time we ever hear Mary. We see her, but that's the last thing we ever hear from her is do what he says. So she becomes the new Eve, correcting what Eve had done for Adam. And so it becomes the new Adam the new Eve in Christ and Mary. Okay? So it is not a mistake that at the wedding is where Christ begins his new mission for us. Um, and then the whole gospel, the whole Bible ends... At the Bridal Supper of the Lamb. We finally become His people. We're ready to unite with Him. We've been chiseled away and we are now perfect to stand in His presence and be His bride. Mm-hmm. That is why marriage is so important. This is how Christ shows Himself to the world. Any questions? Yes. Thank you. Somebody listening.
1: Why did Paul say not to marry he says, "Yeah, you know, well, it's in Corinthians, I think. Um, you should be
2: like me, but if you can't control yourself, I'm not throwing this okay. perfectly. No, I you don't know right, what you're asking. Okay. So the question there's a. a is that. I don't know. Uh, it may be in Corinthians where Paul says, and you can be like me, and he, had, he did not marry. He saved himself for God, really. It was. Um, that can be, I mean, we can look at that as a, a, in holy orders. He was a priest of God. Um, yeah, he said, Now to the unmarried and to the parents, yeah. I say, it
1: is a good thing for them to remain as they are, as I do.
2: So when he's talking. He okay. If
1: exercise self control, they should marry. Yeah,
2: that, that's always safe. So, um, for one thing, St. Paul is he is the very first theologian, and he is the one upon whom every bit of theology for the last 2,000 years has been built. So it's not as simple as opening it up and reading it and saying, well, that's weird. You know, he's saying just don't get married and only get married if you can't control yourself. To understand Paul, you have to first go back and look at who is he writing to. Each of these was written to a different church. So, this was, this was in Corinthians, it was written to the church in Corinth. Um, and it's written because there's a problem going on there. And he's trying to show them how to get back into line with the church, with the universal church, and do what you're supposed to. And what he's basically saying at that point is look, if you're that lost, you know, stop the immorality. He's trying to do anything at that point. Um, to get deeper into that, It'd be a lot bigger question. But he is definitely not just saying marriage is an escape from immorality or anything like that. That's not at all. Go ahead. I've been reading the reading. Yeah. You know, in addition to that, that Paul also believed that Jesus' second coming was imminent. Yes. And I'm sure. one of the reasons that he was he was telling people to focus instead
1: on Jesus and not the things of the world. Yeah. That was another reason for.
2: If you didn't hear what she was saying, it's just very big when you read Paul. The whole reason that nothing was written, Paul, the letters of Paul were the first writings uh, for the New Testament. The Gospels came later because they didn't feel a need to write anything down. Christ was coming back in their lifetime, so why bother taking all this time to write it down? So Paul was, in a lot of times when he's writing, is also saying, look, he could come tomorrow, which he could, but. They really thought, at least within the next 20 years, he's coming. Just stop everything you're doing and radically focus on him, whatever it takes, because he's almost here. So he was not thinking long-term 2,000 years at all. So that's another way of taking Paul. If you want to study Paul, find a good commentary. uh, And there are lots out there. But get help reading Paul. It's ridiculously uh, dense and beautiful. And it is where all of our theology comes from. But get a good commentary from the fathers of the church to help you through it. Because you have to put yourself in their perspective to truly understand what he's talking about. That's a great question Anything else? Okay. Okay, so there are some aspects of, uh, or some characteristics of a marriage that make it a true marriage. Um, It is unifying. There is a unity. You are one flesh. The best translation that I've seen, that, that I've seen in the Bible is when Christ says that two become one, they cleave together. It takes a cleaver to separate them two. They have become one. You physically have to hack them apart if you separate them. Um, Indissolubility. If you are joined together to bring each other to God, that's not a temporary thing. It doesn't make sense in that case. And openness to procreation. You are, in a very real sense... Becoming a sign of the Trinity itself in your marriage. The love of the Father to the Son is the Holy Spirit. And through that, all life sprung forth. In your marriage, the love between the man and the woman is so unifying that life springs forth from it. Just like God did for you. So you become a true reality of the Trinity on earth. And that's why you have to be open to procreation. Okay. Um, Let's see. Yeah, and I, I love God Events Fest. You are cooperating valiantly with the love of the creator, and you become the creator himself in a very real way. Okay. Um, so now, you are unified. You have a family. The family unit is the most fundamental unit of the Catholic Church. It does not start over in St. Michael's. It starts in your home. In 1964, St. Paul VI in Lumen Gentium said, he coined a new phrase, have y'all ever heard the domestic church? Please learn about the domestic church. And this is not y'all, I'm telling you every time I ask this question, it's no, we've never heard that. Too many people believe that when my kids go to Catholic school, I take them to church on Sunday, I'm doing a good job, I'm done. You have got to be the ones, you are the first teachers of your children. When When you baptize your child in the Catholic faith, the priest asks you three times during the ceremony, are you sure about the responsibility you're about to take on? When a priest stops everything and reminds you how Big of a responsibility of this, you should pay attention. Okay, he is stopping to say, "Do you understand what they're asking of you?" And in baptism, they flat out say, "The salvation of this child is in your hands. It is your job to bring them up and keep the light shining." So, in it, parents should, by their word and example, be the first creatures of the faith. Your child will not learn their faith at church. Your child will not learn their faith at school. Hopefully, it will back it up, but your child will learn their faith from you. Um, okay, my second daughter now. My oldest is 17. Kind of funny now that I have a baby too. So I'm 17 down to 10 days. But my second—yeah, that's what I said. Too. <laughs> my second daughter is going through confirmation right now, and I think it was a pretty good exercise. That Matt and uh, Mike asked the parents to do. They asked the children to write a short, I think, 300-word paper on what are the obstacles to you living out your faith today. That's great for kids. You, I mean, does, does anybody have children, especially teenagers here? Raise your hand if you're a teenager. Okay, well, God bless you then. If you're if you're on your way there, God bless you. They are facing a far different world than you and I face. It is unbelievable. My daughter actually uh, picked me up here last night after baptism class and said, I wanted to come get you because I've got a question for you. Someone in school is saying this and she's beating down the church. She goes to a Catholic school and this person is just denigrating the faith over and over and over and I keep trying to give her all these apologetic answers, but that's what they're faced with all the time. Okay? From everything. Every media outlet they've got. So... It's a great thing. But then they also asked the parents there, what difficulty do you have in having a conversation about the faith with your children? And I called Mike and Matt and said, I'm not writing anything. I have no problem whatsoever. I'm not bragging about that. What it is is from the day they were born, it was part of our conversation. We talk about it all the time. I listen to podcasts on by Bishop Barron. I listen to podcasts by Priest. I listen to podcasts on St. Thomas Aquinas. And my nine-year-old and my 13-year-old are sitting in the car with me. They're not getting all of it, but even my nine-year-old boy will say, wait a minute, I don't understand this. And then he'll start asking questions about St. Thomas Aquinas. He's not understanding at all, but it's normal to him, okay? If I asked you, what trouble do you have talking about football to your son? That's a silly question, I don't have a problem doing it. Well, the issue is we wait until they're about to be confirmed at 16 years old and then say, by the way, let me tell you how important the Catholic faith is to you. And they say, well, you haven't talked about it in 16 years. Why is this all of a sudden so important? Make it a part of your family. That's what the domestic church is. Talk about it all the time. Read the readings on the way to church. Read the readings on Thursday before church. Pray during the week. Then, most importantly... It is your job to encourage your children in the vocation, which is proper to each of them fostering a special care vocation to the sacred state. Translated, it's your job to talk to them about the priesthood. Every single son and daughter you have should think about a vocation to religious life. Just as much as they're thinking about being an engineer or being an architect or being a professional football player, they should also be thinking what about a priest? They don't know how to do that. So it's your job as a domestic church to open them up to how to talk to God, how to listen to God even more importantly, and how to hear that call, okay? We will not have more priests if we don't encourage our children to listen to God. There's so much noise in this world, it's not just gonna happen to them, right? So they have gotta learn to think about that. Uh, Funny story, at my son's first communion last year, Father Wayne always takes one kid to be a priest. He loves doing that. So he said, who wants to be a priest? And my son in the front row threw his hand up. So Father Wayne gives him a Roman collar at uh, First Communion. Well, for First Communion, my mother bought John a uh, cassock and a surplus so he could start serving mass because he was so little, none of the ones here fit. He sits up on the altar and dangles his feet. It's hilarious to watch. One day he got to church and goes, oh, I left my Roman collar at home. And I said, you know, I think that was for fun. You're not allowed to really wear it. And then Father Wayne walks up behind me, John, where's your Roman collar? I gave that to you to wear. <laughs> but it's natural to him. And I told him, look, I don't expect you to be a priest, but you should be listening to it. I don't expect you to be an engineer, but you should be open to it. It's all the same thing. Listen to what you're called to do, and maybe it's a priesthood, but we've got to make an open to it. It's what our job is as, far as uh, the domestic church itself. Questions on that? Yes. When you were growing up, did your parents start from where they. Okay, that's a great question. No, your parents my, did not. I uh, thought about that. She said, well, they didn't really encourage us to read stuff at home and all that being at church. Okay. We went to Catholic grade school, but we didn't talk yeah. about it at home all. So, very. Yeah. So, I had an interesting upbringing because my father met my mother when he was a Brazilian seminarian. Okay? And he met her because. Her brother, my uncle, was a Brazilian seminarian with him. And my uncle said, you know, Richard, would you ask, would you help my my sister with her math homework? Six months later, he left the seminary and they got married and they've been married 56 years now. And my uncle went down on a mission trip with uh, Father Enrique Bravo, uh, who lived here in Houston at St. Anne's for a long time. And while he was in Mexico, called his mother and said, I think I met my wife, I'm leaving the seminary. And they've been married 54 years. We come from a family of Brazilians, really, and it was normal. He would real deep theology. Now, I will tell you, though, being very open here, no spirituality. It was very, I could answer almost any theological question you asked, but until a couple of years ago, how do you pray? I'm not very good at that part. And so that is a harder conversation with your children. How do you pray and work with them on that? Because it's something I'm not great at. And a lot of us aren't. So, um, yes, theology, spirituality can have been even better. Good question. Okay, so to get y'all out of here, let's get to now holy orders. So, we, we mentioned, someone mentioned this earlier. And this is funny because it's kind of an either-or. You're going to be married or you're going to be a priest. There's a reason for that. Being a priest does not mean that you have to, okay, it's a higher calling. But that does not mean it is better than being married. Okay. Um, the natural state of life is married life. You actually There's some theologians that will actually say, you don't have a calling to be married. You have a natural tendency to be married. God made us, Adam and Eve, to be married. Okay. You have a calling to be a priest, which means a calling to do away... With what your nature is wanting you to do, and sacrifice all that to give yourself solely to God. Okay, you can have an entire class on that, but I just kind of threw that out at you just so you've heard it at least once. So when you have a calling to, uh, I'm sorry, uh, stop for a second. I'll go back real quick and do this part. Um, in your family, real quick, you are you as a family have the same mission that Christ had, the same mission that each of you got at baptism, to be priest, prophet, and king. you don't understand that, what we mean by that is we're all priests, not in the fact that we're saying mass, but in that we are praising God. We are leading our family in praise. We're leading each other in praise. Um, we are uh, kings. That's an odd one for us here in the United States, but by king what we mean is we're ordering the world around us towards God, or towards the good. Our good is God. And then as prophets, it's our job to go tell the world. The most frustrating thing I hear is that being Catholic is a private thing. My faith is private. I hate to say that you're not doing it right. If, look, at, look at our site. If, if I get a new dog, I go on Facebook and tell the whole world how wonderful this dog is. If I find out that my creator created me to live in eternity in his love inside the trinity in perfect joy forever, that I keep to myself. doesn't make any sense. Let it fill you so much that you can't wait to tell everybody else. You tell them by how you live and you tell them by work. Just bring it to them. You have a question? You know, I was just going to comment on that because I
1: completely agree with you but the way I was raised
2: yeah. That's yes, I mean, we went to mass and we did all that and, we and we did all that, but you didn't really talk about. It. Absolutely not. What are the two things you don't That's talk so about at dinner? Religion and politics. Keep it to yourself. Yeah. In our society said, so yeah, it's offensive. You're pushing your belief on other people. No offense. Damn straight. <laughs> we know our faith is the truth. We have found God. He has revealed Himself to us. Yes, I'm going to go push that on everybody. Why? Because I love them. I want them to find God. Think about that. If you have a child, or you have a, an acquaintance, not even a friend, if you have an acquaintance, and he's walking towards a cliff, well, you know, I don't want to offend him and tell him you're about to fall into a, a great abyss. Yeah, you grab him, you shake him, you throw him down. You even hurt him a little bit when you tap him to the ground, but you just saved his life. Well, we're talking about saving his eternal soul. So yeah, be offensive. Share it with them. Okay? We need more Catholics to be offensive and get out there and share your faith. And you'll be shocked at how many people are looking for it. Go back to that girl that was talking to my daughter and she was just integrating the faith. When I started talking to my daughter last night, I said, stop trying to beat her up with logic. Because she's, what she's actually telling you is that I've got a perk somewhere. So just listen to her. And so my daughter finally texted her back and um, basically said, you know, if you just want to talk, I'll be here for you. Those texts started flowing back. Well, yeah, I have a question about this and about this. I had a priest told me this, and that hurt. Well, then my daughter was able to say, yeah, that was wrong. This is what it is. People are offended because they're hurt in a lot of cases. They're scared. They don't want to face it. I don't want to face my sins. I got to tell you, reconciliation is the most beautiful sacrament we have. And it's still scary for me because I have to go in and say, yeah, knowing who Christ was, I turned away from it. But that's what he wants us to do. And so people get offended. They dig their heels in. They don't want to hear about your faith because it demands so much of them. Um, G.K. Chesterton has a great saying that Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's It's been found hard and not tried. By saying, yes, I know Christ loves me and I love him, it puts an immense demand on us. All those people that say, well, you're faith, you're, you have a faith just because you want to be happy and know that everything is good. No, it means my life is a lot harder. It means that everything I do can't be for me anymore. And so, yeah, that's very hard for people. But we've got to keep explaining to them why that's so wonderful. Oh, sorry, I get preachy too. Okay. But, all right. So now the priesthood. So uh, we mentioned that, that, yes, you are called out of marriage to live a life for God alone. So instead of sacrificing your will for someone else's will, you are going to give your will directly to God. Um, there was a great priest, a new priest, who had his pastoral year here. They got to be a deacon here. Um, does anybody know Father David Huss? i know Mary. David Huss. Okay. He is a really, he actually went to grade school school or high school with my brother-in-law. So he's a close family friend. But whenever you're ordained priest, the next day you have a mass of thanksgiving. And it's the first mass that you lead. It's kind of like a a wedding uh, uh, reception where you invite all your friends. It's the same thing. You invite your friends to it and it's a very intimate mass that you get to say for the first time. Thanksgiving for your holy orders. You choose another priest to give the homily for you. And Father David chose Father Dave Pavanka. Dave Pavanka is now the president of stupidity. He just got named president of uh, Franciscan University. But he gave a homily, I guess this was two years ago now, and I could almost recite this homily for you word for word. Because when he said it, I was just mesmerized by it. He got up and he said, David told me Don't make this homily about him. And he goes, and then, if any of you know David, he then went and gave me a list of all the things that I should do to make sure that it was done the way he wanted it done. But he said, no, David, you're absolutely right. This homily is not about you. In fact, nothing is ever about you again. You have not stepped up into greatness. You have stepped down into death. And that haunted me so much that I actually, later on that night, went and grabbed Father Ivanka and said, i got to talk to you. What are you talking about? And he said, it's a scatological. We're talking about the end of times. We're talking about um, the salvation. When he took those holy orders, he said, I am giving myself into the death of Christ so that I can bring everybody else into his resurrection. That was the most beautiful thing I've ever heard about priesthood. And more people need to hear that. That's what every single priest, their sole job is an easy job to save every single person they see. They are responsible for all of our souls to try and get us to God. So, um, So when we say they are called by Christ to be present for his people, they literally bring Christ himself. They share in the high priesthood, or they share in the priesthood of the one high priest and bring Christ to us in a very real way. Without the priest, we cannot have the Eucharist, and we can't have any of the sacraments that he brings to us. Um, So, let's see. Real important, a quick word on the liturgy itself. The priest stands up in persona Christi. He stands up as Christ. That's the reason when we do the readings at the beginning of the Mass, only the priest or the deacon can actually read the Gospel. And then, does anybody know, what is the response we say, what are the response we say to the readings? We say the Word of the Lord, thanks to God, and then the deacon or the priest gets up and says the Gospel, and then what do we say to him? Praise, Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. We are talking directly to Christ. Praise to you for your word. Christ is speaking directly to us. <clears throat> Throughout the Mass, when you're standing there, we had Bishop Lopes, who's the uh, Bishop of the Ordinary or St. Peter, the Anglican uh, Rite of the Church, came and spoke here at St. Michael's. And I sat in the back there, and my wife said, Do you want some paper? And I said, like, No, I'm not going to take any notes. Then he started saying something. I said, Well, give me one page in case I want to write something. I wrote six pages worth of notes of what he was saying. All he did was he stood up here and without any slides, without anything, he just walked us through the liturgy. That this is what happens at the Mass. And if I could get that recording and force every single Catholic to sit down and listen to it once, the world would be a much better place. When you understand what was it, uh, uh it? St. John Biondi was the one that said, if we truly understand what was happening at the Mass, we would die of joy. We just don't Comprehended. Uh, I saw last night when I was here, they showed, I think the first communion class, kind of a rendering of what's happening in Mass, and when the priest says, join with all the saints and angels, they kind of had an actor play, you know, play Christ and his angels showed up behind him. It was a pretty good, but that's what's physically happening in the liturgy. That priest is becoming Christ for us, and we are joining in the eternal liturgy that's always happening. So when a Catholic says, I don't know why we have to go to Mass. The answer is, it's not that we have to, it's that we get to. You get a chance to glimpse into heaven. And the priest is not joking when he says, join with all the saints and angels. They're physically there singing with you. And you, just for a moment, heaven and earth join inside the liturgy. Um, So, the priesthood itself goes back all the way to Melchizedek. Y'all heard that name. I think there's actually some, say, uh, he was a high priest of Salem. Well, now Christ is the new high priest of the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the new Salem. So there's a link here in it. Melchizedek was the high priest. Then when Moses and Aaron were in the desert, the Aaron chose 70 elders to help Moses to become the new priest. Aaron was from the house of Levi. This is why the Levites were the priests. If you hear in the Gospels, you'll constantly hear from the house of Levi, that means priests, Levitical priests. Right? Then you get to Jesus. and Jesus, whose mother was Mary, whose earthly father was Saint Joseph, Joseph came from the house of David. Which is what we get in the genealogy of Saint Mark of uh, St. Luke. And so we know that Christ is the new king. This is David. Mary came from the house of Levi. So Christ is the new king, too. The new priest also. He is priest and king all in one. He joins the two together. At the Last Supper, he sat down the twelve, representing the twelve tribes of Israel, and made them all the new priests. So you get it from Going to only the Levites, now through Christ, being spread out to all of Israel again, back to the 12 tribes. Does that make sense? How many times in the gospel does Christ call the, the apostles priests? How many times does he say the word priest? Zero. He never once says priest. So this is one of those places where you'll hear, where well, Christ didn't actually make them priests. You have to understand the perspective of the Gospels. When Christ was handling the Last Supper, it did not go the way the Apostles thought it was supposed to go. They knew what a Passover meal was, and that was nothing like a Passover meal. He didn't do things at the right time. He left things out. All of a sudden, they get up after the third cup, and they walk out into the garden. Well, they're supposed to be A fourth cup, that ends the meal. He doesn't do that. They know this is not right. He also takes the bread at one point and says, this is my body. This is my blood in the cup. And then he says, when you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This blood will be poured out. And then he tells them, when you pour out this blood. If you're a Jew in the first century and you hear someone say that you're about to pour out the blood, you would freak out. The only person allowed to pour out the blood is a priest. You would take a lamb to the uh, synagogue or to the temple. You would take it to the temple. You would hold the unblemished lamb up. They would slip the throat of the lamb, let the blood pour into a bowl that only the priest could touch. The priest would take it to the altar and pour it out for you, pour it out for you on the altar. Then it was your job to go home and eat the lamb and complete the sacrifice. And now Christ is telling these Jewish men, you are going to be pouring out the blood of the Lamb. And right then, he made them all priests. So he didn't use the word priest, it was in everything he did. And that's why, whenever we look at the Bible, we've got to go back to that first century perspective on it. Any questions on that? Okay. So, the particulars of the priesthood. There actually is one sacrament. There is holy orders. God willing, I will receive holy orders too. It is the same holy orders that Father Wayne receives and the same holy orders that Cardinal Donardo received. But it's in three different degrees. Cardinal DiNardo is a bishop. So he is the full episcopacy. He is in line with the apostles. You can trace every single bishop back to the 12 apostles. Okay. That's why we are... One apostolic church. They lay the hands on just like the hands were laid on in the gospels or the Acts in Acts by the Apostles, and that line continues. You have to do that line to line with the apostles. We are an apostolic church. It has to be passed down. There's the Presbyterate. It actually was created out of order. Deacons were created second. Those bishops were in charge of an entire church, which is a city or an area, was the one church. And then they needed help. So they had deacons, which just means servant. And the deacons were ordained, but not to the priesthood. They were ordained to ministry and service. So they they received a lower degree of that uh, ordination. And then after that, they said, no, we actually need more priests. Not bishops, but priests. So they got the presbyterate. And they are co-workers of the bishops. It can be said that the priests are the right hands of the bishop and the deacons are the left hand of the bishop. Um, The priest only has authority through the bishop. If you are Father Wayne here in Houston and you go to San Antonio and want to say mass, you have to call the bishop of San Antonio and tell him, I'm in your diocese, I'm under Cardinal DiNardo, do I have your authority to say mass in your diocese? He has to get authority from the bishop. Okay? This is not something new. This is not something we made up. This is something that goes back to day one in the church. As early as St. Ignatius of Antioch, which is the first century. I think it was well, the second century, but you year like one hundred. You have let everyone revere the deacons as Jesus Christ, the bishop as the image of the Father, and the presbyters as the Senate of God and the assembly of the apostles. For without them, one cannot speak of the church. That institution was already firmly in place. This goes back all the way there. When you are ordained, an indelible character is put on your soul, just like at baptism. This is something that can never be erased. Once you are a priest, you are always a priest. Now, they can be laicized, they can be defrocked, but they are still actually, they still have, you want to call them priestly powers. I hesitate doing that because it makes it sound magic. It's not. It's it's power through Christ. If you are ordained a priest and then you are laicized, if someone's dying, you have to give them last rites. You still have that capability. That character is always on your soul. Um, Then you're also given the grace of the Holy Spirit. If you want to sound smart when you're teaching theology, learn the Latin. Because then it makes it sound like you know something no one else does. But really all this is is the grace to teach, worship, and govern. Um, And then they can, uh, they confer the sacred power of Christ. They act as uh, priests of the one true high priest. And they act in the person of Christ himself. The reason Father Wayne wears robes up on the altar is so that we don't see his earthly self, we see Christ himself up there. When you stand at Mass, you're not going to pray, you're not going even to worship God. You're going to join the Son in his eternal worship of the Father. That's incredible. You get to stand with the Son as he offers his perfect sacrifice up to his Father. That's what you get to join in and it's through the priest. Okay. Any questions on
1: that? Yes, sir. Could you explain, I know that
0: a lot, sometimes people have a question, you said
1: obedience to the bishop, would you explain how order priests work? Um,
2: mm. Great question. So how do ordered priests work? So ordered priests, and I'm going to probably pack this up a little bit. <laughs> order, so orders are like a Jesuit priest or a bazillion priest. They don't serve a diocese. They have a very special vocation that they hear called to. And at some point in time, uh, uh, St. Francis is a great example. St. Francis went to Rome and petitioned the Pope that I am called by God not to serve as a diocesan priest and live in my one area. I'm called to do something very particular. And the Pope then decides that, yes, you are, or no, you're not. And he confers the order on them. That, okay, yes, you are now the head of the Franciscan order. And I'm just trivializing this a little bit, obviously. And so now they work under the authority of the Pope himself. And then they have their own governing body, where you'll hear the superior of the Jesuits or whatever. But they still work under the order of the Pope. They just don't work inside a, uh, um, they don't work inside a diocese. Now, Mary, I don't know, do they have to select a bishop that oversees them or does the Pope make one of them a bishop? You know, some report directly to the Pope and then all of them, they do have to ask for permission to work at the diocese. Yes, that's true. So, but they have like a superior. They yeah, a superior. that's right. But you're right, when they come here, um, when Father Dave wants to say Mass here, he has to talk to Cardinal DiNardo and get his permission to be in his diocese. It's a great question. Anything else? Yes? I wanted if you could talk about how the Archbishop and the Cardinals is in this whole you know, Okay, how does Archbishop and Cardinals own? In reality, a lot of that is just title. So an Archbishop is the bishop over an Archdiocese. It's a very large diocese. Say, uh, Houston and Galveston are joined together as an Archdiocese. I think they cover 8,000 square miles or something like that with a lot of churches, and they're just called an archdiocese, or anybody there is called an archbishop. Then there is cardinal. Cardinal um, doesn't actually even have to be a priest, although all it always is. Um, A cardinal is a title given by the pope uh, as a prince of the church. Um, If you're under 75 and you're a cardinal, you become one of the conclave, and you get to vote on the pope. But uh, in a lot of cases, it's a um, honorary title for your service to the church, and yeah, they are all They are all ridiculously smart people who have lots of theology, but uh, it effectively is that they are the princes of the church. However, that does not mean that they are called the opulence and mansions and things like that. They wear red as a sign of they are to now give their blood for the church. That's what that's supposed to remind them of. They are still supposed to be servants like Christ. And again, we misinterpret the word friends. Okay? And yes?
1: Do they act as advisors
2: to the Pope? Okay, so now you're getting into the hierarchy of, do they act as advisors to the Pope? Um, there are lots of the, the hierarchy of the church is ridiculously complex and it's changing all the time, in fact they changed, changed the structure just recently again, but I know there's a, uh, a Roman Curia that advises the Pope as well uh, There's a the, the, the Vatican is also a nation state, so there is a secretary of state of the Vatican who is a cardinal also Um, They they run as a government itself, too. The Pope, though, is a bishop. He is the first among equals, is what we say. He is the vicar of Christ, but he is still a bishop. He's the bishop of Rome. The Pope teaches in union with all the bishops of the church. That's the magisterium or the teaching authority. And so it is when he speaks with them... That he speaks with that teaching authority. And then there's some extra things on there there's teaching ex cathedra which means <laughs> from the chair of Peter. But we're getting into real intricate things that I want to leave to Mary before I lead you down the wrong path. Anything else? Okay. So we have to now bring them back to these are true sacraments. The married couples receive the grace of Christ to be like Christ. For each other to bring each other to salvation. That's a true Christian marriage. The perfect love for each other brings life to the world just like the Creator. They, they act like the Trinity itself. In holy orders, the ordained, the ordained priest becomes configured to Christ to bring Christ to the church and bring the entire church to salvation. The church has one job on this earth the salvation of souls. That's it. And the perfect love of Christ brings Christ physically present in the Eucharist. So, real quick, let's touch on something that's that's a hot topic in the news right now because of misinterpretation and, okay, real quick, I'm just going to soapbox for a second. If you see something on the Today Show or on the morning show that said Pope Francis said this, go read it for yourself. Okay, They are cherry-picking things to show you. For example, right now there's a Controversy that Pope Benedict and Cardinal Serra wrote a book on celibacy, and they're completely at odds with Pope Francis Never mind the fact that Pope Francis said exactly the same thing they're saying just less than a year ago We leave that part out what Pope Francis said recently was We can be open to discussions on possibly married priests in very remote parts of the world if it's necessary, but we're only looking at that. The media takes that to see he doesn't think celibacy so, is necessary and we should tear down that institution also. Remember, if I get to be saved for a day, I'm going after holy orders and I'm going after matrimony. Because if I can tear those two things down, then these people are not symbols of Christ in the world anymore. And so yes, they are going to attack those kind of things. So why is a priest celibate? It is not because the church hates sex. It is not because the church hates married couples. It is not because the church thinks that all that stuff is evil. It's because the church thinks that that is so important. And that that is what we are naturally called to as being in the image of God. That as a priest, they're going to forego that. To show you that yes, once all that is perfectly ordered there's something even greater than you are aspiring to. And in heaven, there will be no marriage. You will not be given in marriage. You will live in perfect unity with God, just like the priest does now. So they are to be a symbol of something transcendent for us. And they're willing to sacrifice all those earthly goods, as great as they are and as natural as they are, to show us that there's something more to aspire to. That's why celibacy is so important. It is an act of sacrificial love for the church to show us Christ himself. Okay? So so box over. But that, again, if you see it on the news, go read it yourself. Go look at the documents, do your own research, and find out what's actually being said and written. That's it. Any questions? Yes? John, would you briefly talk about formation for the two sacraments, and if you would be willing, could you share with us a little bit of your discernment around your vocation? Yeah, sure. So my discernment. To my, so I'm I'm called to both of these, actually, uh, or at least I think I am so far. Well, marriage I'm pretty much set on. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell my wife I said We're, we're good there. But uh, no. I, um, so a great. When how do you know you're called to marriage? You know, again, we look at that. Well, we love each other. We're happy. No, you pray, and we've always prayed. We've always been together in the church. Um, and if you look in Galatians and you see the gifts of the Holy Spirit that Paul mentions, if you find that when you're with that other person, each of those things comes out of you even more, then that's a good sign that the Holy Spirit is in that relationship with you and your potential spouse. If you find that when I'm with those people, it's a lot harder to find those gifts of the Holy Spirit in me, then that's a good sign that the Holy Spirit is missing. And that's not, and that there's something not right there. right? Now to the diacon. I'm not calling the priesthood, obviously, but uh, to the diacon. I mentioned a minute ago that I was cradle Catholic. I could debate theology with the best of them, but then you asked me to pray, and I was kind of lost. Um, I went to Rome in 97 with my school, with the University of Dallas, and the, one of the first days we were there, we got to pray the rosary with St. John Paul II. And he walked across the stage, kneeled down, and I watched him pray, and I was saying the same words as he was and repeating it, but he was doing something completely different than I was, and it didn't make any sense to me. Um, We had a nightly rosary at our campus in Rome, and I would go to it often, and I'd watch my friends, and again, they were off in prayer somewhere, and I was repeating words, and there was just nothing happening. Um... And it wasn't until a few years ago, maybe four years or three or four years ago, Matthew Kelly came and talked here. Right? Uh, I'm not a huge Matthew Kelly fan, to be honest with you. I don't think he goes deep enough, but he was here, and it was enough for me. He, he said that when we pray, we, we pray to the God of Walmart. You know, God, i would like this, 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 and this, and if you could have it ready for me in under an hour, that would be great. And I know I want it right now, and here's how I want it. But what we don't do is pray to God for what He's ready to give us. We don't pray for the big things. Like We don't just flat out say, God, send your Holy Spirit and transform me. Because we're worried when we do, it's going to happen. And so to be honest with you, my wife and I talked about that, and we both came out saying, yeah, that's a scary prayer. And we started praying it, and it wasn't more than that a couple weeks later, Um, Father Wayne stopped me after a said, I want you to get more involved with the church and I want you to be an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion I thought, great so I had to go down and take one of those wonderful classes down at the Chancery where they sit you there all day long and tell you things you already know and they showed a video of Robert Barron talking about the Eucharist and he talked about St. Thomas Aquinas and he said that when St. Thomas Aquinas would get stumped on something he would lean his head on the tabernacle and just pray for God to give him the strength. And that thing hit me. I don't do that. I don't turn to God. When things get rough, I turn away from the church to make sure I can take care of myself and figure out how to do it. And so I went home and I told my wife, I was like, I don't know what happened, but something happened today. It just felt weird. Something lit, and I don't know what it is, but I'm just giving you fair warning. And so I went and read Bishop Barron, and everything he writes, Be careful. Everything he writes, he says the name of a brand new theologian. <laughs> and so I'd go read that book. And then he would say, well, then there's Hans Urs von Balthasar. So I went and read Hans Urs von Balthasar. And then he would say something. And I'd go read that. And the more I kept opening this stuff up, I went, I didn't know all this was there. I mean, I knew this theology. But seriously, God wants that for me. And it's all sitting there for me. And it just lit this fire. And so I came and asked, by the way, what else can I do? And I started doing more and more. Then uh, Ann Caciola told me, you know, they do a chrism mass. And at the chrism mass is where they bless all of the oils that will be used at confirmation and uh, all that for you. Everything for the diocese is done at one mass the Tuesday before Easter. Went down and sat at that, and all the priests come to the diocese to renew their vows. You have like a couple hundred deacons there and a couple hundred priests all there at this big mass. Beautiful. And we walked outside after It's a a two-and-a-half-hour Mass, something like that. We walked out after Mass, and I looked at my wife, and I said, I think I want to be a deacon. And she looked at me, and she said, I was going to tell you the same thing because something hit me in there that you need to be a deacon. And I went, oh, man, great. I don't have enough to do with, with them four kids at home. You know, great. And I swear, this is the weirdest thing. The next Sunday at Mass, Father Wayne grabbed me before Mass, and said, I need to talk to you. And then starts Mass. So I sweat all during Mass going, what did I possibly do to make him mad? And after Mass, he's greeting everybody. And he grabs me and said, come, come here. And he kind of shooed Nancy and the kids away and takes me into the church. I'm thinking, okay, oh, I'm really in trouble. He sits me down and he says, I want to talk to you. I'd like you to think about possibly becoming a deacon. And I said, well, funny story. I actually, Nancy and I just started talking about this. And in pure Father Wayne fashion, he jumps up and says, "Perfect." then consider me the Holy Spirit, saying, "Yep, do it." And he walked away. <laughs> All right, and I signed up right away. So that's it. Sometimes he hits you over the head because you're not listening. But uh, that's it. That's where I got that call. That's a great story. And it, go talk to other people that have done it. God is persistent. He's not loud. He is that whisper. But man, he's persistent. I have a great buddy who went to college with me and is a priest now. Who was the worst kid you would want to know in college? If you had to pick the priest, he'd have been the last one at the college to be a priest. Didn't want to go to mass, didn't want to do any of that stuff. Went on to become an agricultural scientist, and he'll tell you the story that, yeah, and every time I went out, there was just this prodding at me that you're not where you're supposed to be, you're not where you're supposed to be. And it kept getting louder until finally he said, Fine. And he went and talked to a priest. And signed up for the seminary, and he's been a priest now for 20 years, and just one of the best out there. So he just gnaws at you if you're at open at all to it. So could you talk a little bit about that formation piece? So the formation now, long and grueling. <laughs> um, I'm not really in it yet, so I'm in what's called the inquirer stage. Um, as a, what they do at, for a deacon is, we go to the seminary every Monday. Um, for two years and we take classes in basic Bible studies in basic Old Testament, New Testament, um, how to do exegetical reason, readings of, the, of the, um, the Bible, some philosophy classes, things like that just to give us a baseline. And all through that time we're also just trying to find out is this really what we're supposed to do? Do we have the time commitment? Can we we all joke about it that it's really it's like an obstacle course of persistence here. Can we just stick with it? Uh, starting this Saturday, actually, we then start five years of one Saturday a month going in for uh, all-day spirituality and learning to pray and learning to be pastoral and talk to people and uh, some psychology and things like that. And then after next year, if the Cardinal doesn't say, yeah, you're not right for this at all, at any point you, you can get a letter saying, yeah, you're wrong. But uh, <laughs> So I'm waiting for that any day now. But, uh, once you get past that, then you actually start at St. At Mary's Seminary, but starting at the St. Thomas, uh, University of St. Thomas. Um, it's not a, actually a Master of Theology, but it's, a, it's as wide, but not quite as deep. And so you get what's called a Master of the Pastoral Studies. And so in five short years here, if all goes well, I could be ordained to be. <laughs> that's it. Right. Okay. And that's for all deacons. No. Uh, in fact... My son goes to Regis uh, School. It's an all-boys school, and it's right next to Walsingham, which is the ordinary of St. Peter's. And they're Anglicans, or they're Anglican right. And the priest there is married, and he has kids at Regis. And at a soccer practice one day, I said, "You'll pray for me." And he goes, "Well, how long is that?" I said, "Well, it's six years, seven years total at the time." And he goes. I can make it, a it too. <laughs> yeah. No, it's diocese by diocese, but what's happening now is, uh, honestly, because of, sadly, because of some of the scandals in the church, they want to make sure that there's this long formation to, so that they know you, you know them, and you really are right for this. And uh, so what they're probably going to do is take what Houston is doing here and then start expanding it out to the rest of the United States. I just picked the wrong one to start at. Yes? So seven years
1: ago?
2: Yeah, so the first year, they only start every two years. Classes start every two years. And so it gives you time to, uh, I mean, so I went two years ago, January went to an information night, then in May went back to an application night, and then in November went back to an orientation night, and then January started classes. And so that first year is like a year of discernment. Just you even want to start this thing? And then it starts two full years of discernment while you're in class, and then four years of actual um, master's work. Yeah. Yes. Isn't there a maximum age also to enter the D.M.N. Like 50 or 55? Yeah, I think there. I think there is. I know that there's a minimum age. It's 35 and there's a maximum age, and I don't know what, it, it may be like 57, actually, or something like that, but uh, yes, yeah, there is a maximum age. And so deacons don't take a vow of celibacy, but you take a vow, uh, a vow, everyone has a vow of chastity, but they take a, uh, basically the way we enter the diaconate is the way we stay. If you go in single, you are single forever. If my this is my story. So they told us, do you understand That if your wife dies, you have to remain celibate and unmarried for the rest of your life. Are you okay with that? My wife's first question was, "Wait a minute, what if he dies?" But yeah, so that's uh, that's the answer. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Anything else? Yes. Do you have any tips on prayers or praying? I mean, I
2: feel like that's a big struggle with it. It's a huge struggle. And I stand up here like wanting to say, God, I'm the last person you should ever ask about this. Um, Okay. So Mary gave me the opportunity to speak at Lent about the Blessed Mother. Go to her. Start the rosary. It's a... Okay. For one thing, so there are different forms of prayer. We could get into that. The lowest form of prayer is actually just talking. We always think that. that prayer means speaking. If you, I think it's St. Teresa of Avila. When you listen to her talk about prayer, she never once uses the word words or talk or anything. That has nothing to do with it. Prayer is lifting ourselves up into the presence of God. That's it. Just sit there. So don't be afraid just to be silent. And let him take over. That's one thing that I'm bad about. I like to sit there in silence and go, well, let me talk if you're not going to. I keep going, okay? Then turn to Mary. Christ gave us Mary. On the cross, think about the crucifixion for a second. The word excruciating came from crucifixion. It is to this day the most painful execution form we have ever had. And our God did that for us. You're literally stuck up on a tree with your hands above your head, nailed to this tree, while your lungs fill up with blood and you, you drown in your own blood. It is awful. So every word you speak is air that you lose in your dying fashion. So the words that Christ spoke to us on the cross are the ones we really need to listen to. Because they were so important that he was he wanted to say them to us there. He looked at John and he said, Behold your mother. And he looked at Mary and said, Behold your son. John represents the church. Christ gave us his mother. And um, I'm blanking on the name now. I'm sorry. I can't believe I'm doing that. But, but there's a great book written on Mary, True Devotion to the Blessed Mother, where he said, um, oh, I can't believe uh, St. Louis de Montfort said, Wherever the Blessed Mother is, the Holy Spirit is too. And whenever you have the Blessed Mother and the Holy Spirit, you have Christ. That's what the Annunciation was. That's what the Incarnation was. So if you hold Mary in your heart, especially when you all get to participate in the Eucharist, when you walk up and receive the Eucharist, you now have Mary in your heart and Jesus in your heart as well. You have everything. And he actually says, just shut up and let them talk. Let them lift you up to God. So turn to the Blessed Mother, pray the rosary. I didn't know how to pray the rosary, so I talked about that. Here seeing St. John Paul II, seeing my friends, I was just saying the words. And I didn't understand how the mysteries fit in. It kind of seemed like, yeah, you know, we say the rosary, we say these Holy Mary, Hail Marys, and then we stop everything and say something about Christ and then forget that and then now go back to the Hail Marys. I was doing it all wrong. Um, St. John Paul II said that the rosary is the most Christocentric prayer we have. The whole thing is based on Christ. Because what you're doing is you're holding the Blessed Mother's hand and asking her to show Christ to you the way she knows He was. She was the first to pray. She was the first to contemplate. She was the first to gaze on the face of Christ. So hold her hand and let her help you. So when you say the Hail Marys, what you're doing is you hear the mystery, you hear the Annunciation, you hear the, uh, um, the agony in the garden. Any of the mysteries you hear, then ask Mary, what was it? What did you see there? What did you learn when you pondered it in your heart? Have her take you to the foot of the cross. St. John Paul II, when he, when I, I mentioned this in the talk. When I said that he wasn't doing it the same way I was, he wasn't even in the room with us. He was somewhere off different. And a couple years later, Mel Gibson came out with The Passion of the Christ, and everyone should see that movie, probably every blend. But uh, St. John Paul got a pre-screening of it, and he just said, it is as it was. And the critics said, oh, see, he loved the movie, and it did all what he was saying. What he was saying was, I've held, I've held the Blessed Mother's hand, and I have stood at the foot of the cross as our, as our Christ was crucified, and this is exactly what it was like. He does that through the rosary. So to start praying, talk to your mother. And that's the easiest way to do it. But don't be bound up by uh, words and don't try and be perfect. Uh, This is one of the things I've heard a lot and it's great. You go out and try and play tennis. You're going to be terrible at it. Well, if you truly love it, are you going to keep trying to get better? Anything you do that you're good at. You were terrible when you started. Well, we're terrible with prayer. And then we say, yeah, I'm no good at that. And then we stop. Keep practicing. And you've got a teacher. Ask that teacher, you know, take over. You give me the words. You tell me what to say because you already know. Don't be afraid to be vulnerable like that. We pray on our knees because we're humble and we're vulnerable. So be that way and let him take over. That's all I got. <laughs> Anything else? Okay? Thanks,
0: John. Okay, I think we're going to call it a night, Um, but I do want to remind you BOW is mandatory. So our room should look like this on Sundays, and you should tell me when you're not coming, okay? Because that's part of your formation and um, it's a time for us to pray together as a community of faith. So, um, so please make an effort to make it to EOW on Sundays. We're not meeting this Sunday, so you're off this Sunday. And then just a word about um, what John talked about too, um, is that we are going to have a couple of nights of prayer. And so where we're actually going to do some of these devotionals, teach you kind of the format, and um, give you some pointers. In fact, Alejandra, this is one of our seminarians, is going to Take that us. Okay, well, why don't we um, end with um, the Hail Mary. Why don't we do that? Um, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Our Lady, see of wisdom. Pray for us. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks, everybody. Be careful going home.
1: Leave your name down.